welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have Justin Abram, tax partner at Kraftburger LLP in Toronto. Justin is a tax expert, and I brought him in today to specifically talk about the implications of expatriate, that is, when you decide to leave Canada. Unfortunately, people like to think that the border is just this imaginary line we cross. We need a, we need a passport for it, and that's all there is. But oh no, there are serious tax implications for what happens when you want to leave Canada. And with that, here's my interview with Justin. Justin, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks, Jason. My, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Justin Abram, tell us about who it is you are and what it is you do. Yeah, so I'm a tax partner at Kraftburger LLP in, in Toronto, primarily advising you know owner-managed clients, uh, uh, self-employed individuals, people with businesses, people who are employed, high net worth people, estate planning, uh, tax planning, estate planning, dispute resolutions, purchase and sale of businesses. So anything into the, in the realm of tax. The firm is a multi-service, full-service firm, audits, reviews, valuations, tax, of course. So yeah, you know, been here eight years, partner, partner for what's going on. Excellent. So, I mean, I brought you on the podcast because we were working on a case together right now on an expatriation and it's funny. So I've often said, and as I said in the intro, that people treat changing countries as if it's this, it's nothing. So let me just pack it up and go without it's amazing how many people do that without ever stopping to think of the tax implications. And on more than one occasion, I've seen people stop entirely and rethink their entire plans. There's certain times this happens, more often than not, around U.S. election time, people look to move to Canada, where everybody's, where everybody's plan B country. And then when something goes wrong in Canada, whether it be botched COVID rollouts or potential tax increases, everybody starts talking about moving to the States or, you know, just a, just a really hard winter. Uh, yeah, those yeah. things happen. So basically, but it's not as simple as I'm just going to pack it up and go. I mean, if you have nothing, it is that simple. But if it isn't that simple, then... There's there's real tax implications to anyone who's got any kind of wealth in this country. So what I wanted to do was kind of talk about what that means from a tax standpoint, both personally and corporately for an individual as a business owner. So from your standpoint, like what is the first thing people need to understand about leaving the country? Okay, from a from a tax point of view, leaving the country, it depends what assets you own. So broadly speaking, let's start with what the concern is that Jason was just referring to. So basically, Canada has a regime that if you own property here while you were a Canadian resident, and we'll get to the exceptions and, and all that, that that value that accrued here in Canada while you were a Canadian resident should be taxed in Canada if you were to leave Canada. Canada has a worldwide taxation system, meaning if you're a resident of Canada, okay, and resident of Canada for an individual generally means, you know, for most of us who live here, it means that we make our lives here. We're ordinarily resident. Some people talk about this 183-day test. And yeah, that is there for people who sort of sojourn in Canada. They're not ordinarily resident here on the facts. But for the, we're talking to you know, Canadians like you and me who are here. We're resident here. We pay tax on our worldwide income. So if we live here for 20 years, whatever it is, and we're owning a property, shares of Bell Canada, that go up, 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 up in value. If we leave the Canadian tax system and move to uh, the British Virgin Islands, if we sell it in the British Virgin Islands, Canada doesn't get to tax that property. So what Canada does, is it says, okay, all of that growth for 20 years that you accrued, when you leave Canada, you're going to owe us tax on that gain. Now, if you have a million dollar capital gain, just to pick a number, that could be $270,000 of cash taxes that you have to pay. And 
lot of people don't have that type of liquid cash. So we'll get into sort of the mechanisms to deal with that. But broadly speaking, that is the problem that people are dealing with. They call it the departure tax. From my knowledge, not very many. I don't know. I don't know if any other countries have it. I could be mistaken, but it's very small. The United States doesn't have a departure tax per se. You know, if you're a U.S. citizen, you're going to pay tax when you die. There's an estate tax and there's a tax if you renounce and that kind of thing. But if you don't have a green card, you don't have U.S. Uh, citizenship. But in fairness, there's a key reason for that. And that's because the Americans tax differently than we do. We tax based on residency, like most of the world, with the exception of the U.S. and Eritrea. The U.S. and Eritrea, good luck enforcing that, are they tax, tax based on citizenship. So as far yeah. as they're concerned, they don't care where you live. You're filing with the IRS either way. That's true. But I mean, if you come to the U.S., what I was saying, you come to the U.S. and you don't have, you don't obtain citizenship nor green card. You know, if you just live there for, uh, you know, five, six, seven years and then you leave, well, you're not a U.S. citizen or, or a green card holder. So you wouldn't necessarily fall under, you know, any of those those rubrics. So it's possible, yeah. I guess, that you could, you know, I don't want to speak. I'm not a U.S. tax expert, although the firm does have have them should anybody need it. But it's a Canada's departure tax system is somewhat somewhat unique from my experience. So at the end of the day, you know, the, the crux of it is that there are certain assets where it's what's known as a deemed disposition. Essentially, it's yeah. as if you sold it at the time. And there's certain assets that are, for lack of a better term, exempt from that or unimpacted from that. Yeah. So basically, for anyone sitting on, I'll pick on real estate, given the current market, you know, you had that investment property for 20 years and it's now, congratulations, gone up dramatic amounts, including like 20% last year. And you're like, okay, I think I'm going to retire in Florida now and spend all my days down there. That is going to be one honking tax bill on the capital gains is if you sold it, you are going to have to pay it. Yeah. So when you leave Canada, we'll go just reiterate what Jason said there. So the properties that are, so let's start like this. Everything you own is subject to the steam disposition tax. Okay. Except, and you're the kind of notable ones, Canadian real property. All right. Canadian real property is not subject to the deemed disposition rule. The logic for that is if you move to, yeah. you, you can move to Mars, right? You can move to Mars. The fact is if you sell it from Mars, the Canadian government can come tax that property. They just got to put a padlock on the door. Because ah, the asset's there. Right? Yeah. So it's there. So if Canadian real property is totally fine. The reason is non-residents are subject to tax on the sales of Canadian real property. So if you leave Canada, you go in and out, Canada doesn't care because they're going to get that apologies. tax. I got confused because I was just thinking about the case we're dealing on, but their properties owned corporately. So exactly. that's the issue. So yes, you're right. Well, personally owned property. So to clarify, personally owned property is not an issue, largely because the property's in Canada. <laughs> so yeah, personal here. or investment yeah. property in exactly. Canada is, is not a yeah. problem. Now, if the property is in a corporation, that is subject to the departure tax. So it's- And we'll come back to corpse shortly. So. so we'll come back to that. So Canadian real estate is uh, not a problem. So the house you lived in, your rental properties in Canada, yes. not an issue. You can leave. You don't have to pay tax. But I said the house you live in is tax exempt in the first place. But the, the, big, the bigger issue here comes down to the rental property. Now that said, something to be aware of is that when you're not resident in Canada, you no longer qualify for the principal residence exemption from that point forward. So any gains on your where you were living before, after you leave, that is now up for grabs. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, noticeable ones would be uh, certain uh, life insurance policies, right? Uh, RSPs, TFSAs, RESPs, those uh, pensions, you know, DPSPs, RIFs, those kind of things are not subject to deemed disposition because when you're a non-resident and the Canadian custodian pays you those amounts, there will be a withholding tax. So one of the things that could actually be very favorable if somebody moves to a uh, Bermuda or uh, British Virgin Islands or something like that, or Bahamas, when they made the contribution to their RSP, they're getting a deduction at 54%. If they now live in the Bahamas, 
and the custodian is paying, let's say, their RIF or their RSP to them, there's only a 25% withholding tax, potentially reduced by a treaty, but we usually don't have a treaty with those type of countries. So you could get a deduction at 54 and pay tax at 25. If there's no tax in your new home country, all you're going to pay is the Canadian withholding tax. There's no withholding tax on TFSAs. That can come back tax-free. And one of the interesting things to keep in note, if you're moving to the United States about RRSPs, one of the typical planning things that we'll do is we'll have the emigrant, right? Somebody who's leaving Canada, we call an emigrant. The emigrant will, will say, okay, sell all your property in your RRSP, buy it back. And the reason for that is for Canadian tax purposes, that's a nothing. We all know we can sell and buy back an RRSP. It's tax-free, tax-neutral, tax-deferred, whatever you want to call it. But for the US, there's a specific rule that it steps up the cost of those properties for U.S. purposes. So when you extract it uh, while a resident of the United States, you can actually get that back without, you can actually take that to the United States without tax. So that's a very common thing that we'll do if somebody is emigrating with respect to their TFSAs. So with their RSPs, mind you. For TFSAs, we'll just tell people specifically if they're moving to the United States, just collapse your TFSA. The reason is you can take it out without withholding tax. And Mm -hmm. If you maintain the TFSA while you're a U.S. person, let's say, treated like a trust that's looked through, it's taxable. The income in there is not tax deferred. So while you're a U.S. You know, citizen, Greek card holder, resident, there's really no point in having the TFSA. If you're going to another country, it's possible to still maintain it, get the tax deferred growth. You can't make contributions, but uh, well, you can subject to a penalty. But that's what the TFSA. So the RSP, that's the thing that's often overlooked if you're moving to the United States. We want to crystallize yeah. that before we move. So just to clarify, a TFSAs, they're basically not recognized for tax shelter by the U.S. altogether. So cash them out. If you ever come back to Canada, get that room back anyway. So there's no harm there. And then the RSPs, again, this is this is something that a lot of people don't understand in the U.S. There's something called, they actually track cost base within RSP, within qualified accounts in the U.S., right? And when you go to the when you go to the U.S. and you have a Canadian RSP, they apply the same set of rules to it, more or less. And that's what Justin's getting at, is that if you reset your cost base before you go to the U.S., then the U.S. will base whatever amount you have in the RSP, let's call it $300,000, that amount will be able to come out of your RSP. And when you pay taxes in the U.S., it will come out from their standpoint tax-free. Yes, you will pay withholding tax in Canada, but you will not pay no additional taxes in the U.S., plus you'll get credit for that. Exactly. One other very uh, important um, exemption that most people don't think about is if you come to Canada and you're only here for a short time. So if you owned property, came to Canada, and you're here for, I'll generalize the rule, kind of less than five years out of 10 years, okay? Less than five years out of 10 years. So you're in and out of Canada, but you're here for less than 60 months out of 120 months. If you bring property to Canada and it explodes, when you leave Canada, that property is also exempt from the departure tax. That property is also exempt. So we call that, you know, a uh, short-term residence. Let's say short-term residence. So something to keep in mind, if you are leaving Canada and have been here, call it less than 60 months out of the last 120 months, if you brought property to Canada, the property that you bought, you brought to Canada is exempt when you leave. If you acquire property in Canada though. So all said and done, bottom line, when you're an individual leaving, the implications aren't too harsh, right? Again, the, the savings accounts are, well, the registered accounts are not an issue. It depends on the country you're going into, how you should do before them. Before that, uh, principal residence, real estate property, not an issue. It's more so investment property. So other investment property is an issue, and that will trigger gain, which can be significant depending on the individual situation. But for the most part, for most people, it's not a big deal. I'd say it's a bigger deal when you move from Canada, from the US to Canada, but that's a different story. The other thing to be aware of too, is that you mentioned the 183 day test. So often the tiebreaker in most cross-border tax treaties is basically the half a year. Are you spending more than half a year in one country or the other? 
as to who you're resident with. One thing to be aware of with the US, it's not 183 days. It's 183 days on a rolling schedule. So a certain number of days carry over for a year and then the following year. So if you go 183 days in the first year, you can spend fewer than that in the, in the second year and even fewer than that in the third. So just be very careful and aware of that. And it is possible that two countries think you're residents, in which case they deny your foreign tax credits. <laughs> so it can be a mess if that happens. So try to stay on side. Anything magic there? Oh, yeah, just to comment on that. Yeah, yeah. The United States, Canada, you can be resident in two ways. You can be resident, like Jason and I, we're resident yeah. not because we're here for more than 183 days. We're resident because we're our- Physically present. Ordinarily resident here, our, our houses are here, our you know, spouses, families, all this stuff. So we could technically, arguably, spend more than 183 days abroad. Canada would likely consider us resident because we have our, our primary ties here and our secondary ties, right? So we have our house, our family, those are primary ones. And then, you know, then we have you know, passports, driver's license, bank accounts, all that stuff in Canada. Second, if you're kind of visiting here, Canada, you can be here if you're sojourning, right? Sojourning is sort of a temporary sort of flowing status, more than 183 days. United yeah. States, as Jason students, mentioned- That applies to students quite frequently too, right? Like you come here for school and yeah. you're not considered resident of the country. Yeah, you might have to look to a tax treaty. We'll talk to, talk about it in a sec, but yeah, that's right. Second, you know, the United States, like Jason mentioned, if you are there, if you're there more than 183 days in the year, you're they don't go by factual. They have a substantial presence test, which Jason was talking about, based on days. That's it. So if you move to, and the states and the federal government might have slightly different rules, but from a federal point of view, if you move there, if you're there more than 183 days in the year, you're a resident. If you are there kind of 120 days a year for a three-year rolling period, which what Jason was alluding to, if you, if, you, if you do the math, there's a formula. If you do 120 in one year, 120, 120, that'll sort of equal, according to this formula, call it 182, 183, and you'll meet the substantial presence. So if you meet it under that uh, rolling period, there's a form that Canadians can file. This happens all the time to snowbirds, right? They move down to Florida for four or five months of the year. They're going to be considered residents of the United States. They can file what's called an 8840 closer connection form. They don't have to go to the treaty. And the United States says, hey, you're not a resident here. No problem. I don't know if we want to get into the U.S. residency stuff or... or no, we actually <laughs> covered that in the previous episode. Anyone wants okay. to hear about that, go back and listen to my episode with uh, Terry Ritchie. But okay. let's let's jump into where the bigger problems happen, which is, simply put... How to um, pay the tax, posting security. Well, maybe. we'll talk about way to pay the tax, but typically with business owners. So let's talk about what happens with business owners to them when they decide to leave the country. We talked about before property that is, is deemed to be disposed of. So if you are a shareholder of a company, you leave Canada, we talked about public securities, we talked about that as deemed to be disposed of, but that also applies to private, private company shares. So you own a business, family business, you have shares in a company, you leave Canada, well, it's no different. Canada is going to want that accrued value. doesn't matter that it's a private private share. So if you leave Canada and uh, you have a huge business, I mean, let's take some multimillionaires. One of the reasons that maybe certain people who you would have thought would have otherwise left Canada, pretty rich people who don't like our taxes, haven't left is because they own shares in these huge family businesses. And there's no dollar test if you own a small one, same thing. But if you own shares in a company, you got to pay that departure tax. And using the highest rates in Ontario in this year, it's called a 27%. So now, those shares might not be liquid, but you got to come up with the money anyway. And maybe in this segment, we'll talk about posting security, but you got to come up with, with the money. And only, we'll talk about this, but not only do you have to come up with the money here, now you're going to be a non-resident owning the share. So when you leave Canada, if it's a Canadian corporation, okay, nothing happens. I should mention, nothing happens to the corporation itself. Because it's incorporated in Canada, it remains a Canadian corporation, even though you 
controlling person might be a resident of the United States or, or Spain. So nothing happens to the corporation. Now, you might say, well, that's a good thing. Well, yeah, it is a good thing in the sense that I guess maybe the tax is initially lower. But when the now non-resident who has left Canada wants to take the money and out of the company, there's going to be gains in the underlying value in the corporation and withholding tax because now a Canadian company is paying a now non-resident. So you could get 27% tax when you leave. You could get Depend, you know, let's say 25%, if not reduced by treaty, withholding tax when Canada pays uh -huh. dividends, and you could have uh, tax when the property is sold. So if you don't take any proactive steps, you could have a few layers of, of tax there. So it is a problem. And um, that's what Jason and I were working on, a plan to sort of mitigate that. Yeah. So let's talk about the posting of security. Explain to me what that is. Like, how does that work? And does it work every time? Okay. Posting of security is the CRA has the... Uh, authority has the uh, discretion to accept adequate security in lieu of money. If you leave the country and you you have a ten million dollar gain on your shares, which is very common. I mean, accrued gain on your shares. You know, who's going to have two point five million dollars unless they sell those shares? A lot of people don't want to. They want to hold on to it. So if you don't have two million, two and a half million dollars, you can do a few things. Okay, we're talking about private company shares. You can pledge themselves. Now, CRA doesn't love taking private company shares. Because they're just that. They're not liquid. They don't have a ready market. Value is sort of arbitrary. It's not It's not uh, listed anywhere. So not only is it not liquid, it's not readily valued at a day's notice like Bell Canada is. So if you have a private company share, you can post it, but they make you do a ton of things. I mean, you got to give them the minute book, shareholders. you got to ask them permission to pay dividends. All of these things. It's, it's <laughs> You now have a partner. But yeah. Financial statements, copies of articles. They got to have, have you know everything. There's also got to be a two to one ratio. Like if you owe 100 grand in tax, the shares have to be worth at least 200,000. So there's all of these different tests. And you can only pledge private company shares if those are the shares that gave rise to the tax. Okay. Everything else, you can basically post anything else for. So, for example, you have public company securities. You know, you can, they used to take that. I'm not sure anymore if they take the public company securities, but a letter of credit is the most standard. A mortgage on your, your house, they'll give you up to 75% of the appraised equity. Those are pretty, pretty standard. You know, if you can get, the, get those things, those are good. You can use those to post security for anything. So you can use those to post security for your private company shares. It's only if you want to post private company shares, you can't post private company shares to cover your like bill uh, on a rental property. You have to post private company shares for those private company shares. So if you're doing a mortgage, if you're posting security that's a mortgage or a letter of credit, those will generally get accepted pretty easily. Security has to be in place, okay, whatever you're posting, by April 30th of the year after you incur the tax. So if you leave in 2021, by April 2022, you got to have the security there. And uh, there's no interest that ticks once security is, is in place because the CRA, the Income Tax Act, deems it to that you have actually paid. It's like you paid money. It's like you paid it to them. You can't do that for your normal income taxes, but for deemed departure tax, you can post security. I don't think if there's anything else that's relevant to the security, but from my experience, private company shares, you got to start well in advance if you want to do that because it takes a few months. For the other stuff, pretty straightforward. You know, you need an appraisal from a third party if you're posting your house. You need a uh, land title search, um, third party statements for all mortgages. And the CRA will take second position. They don't have to be on first position. Hmm. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, they don't care because they'll enforce it regardless. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, that's the thing, right? They will, uh, and I have the whole list uh, in a file somewhere, but those are basically the highlights of, of posting security. If your gain is a hundred thousand or less, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. There's something called deemed security. So if your gain is 100,000, if you times it by 25%, which is sort of the Canadian federalized tax rate, that's 25,000 of departure gains. You don't have to post any security. It's covered automatically. So 100,000 or less, you're covered automatically for security. Anything more than that, you got to pay up or post security. So at the end of the day, if there's a liquidity issue, there are options as long as there's value to be had there. Of course, CRA does have to basically do that. So we talked about mitigation. What kind of steps are typically involved in mitigation? So some mitigation techniques, right? So KFSA, don't have to do do anything just because there's no deemed departure, just want to cash it out. RSP, if we're moving to the the US, crystallization, and we leave Canada, no problem there. Canadian real property, really, really, really nothing. Not be disposed of. So let's talk about private company shares. You leave, you leave, uh, you leave Canada. You got these private company shares. You post security. You know, don't post security. Okay, let's say you just want to do some planning, and you're you want to make sure that you basically pay your tax now, and you don't have any double tax because with private company shares, that's where the double tax can kick in, as I mentioned before. So what you can do is, I mean, you can do it a few different ways, but one common way might be if there is you want to reduce the value of the company before you leave. That's what you want to do. How do we do that? So if we have an investment company, we might have a capital dividend account. Okay, capital dividend account is a basically tax-free account within a corporation from selling capital gains. We, as we might know, capital gains are only half taxed in Canada. So the non-taxable portion goes into the special account in the company. Let's pay that out. That's going to reduce the value of the company. If we have um, something called refundable taxes, these are taxes on investment income a corporation pays, uh, a Canadian-controlled corporation pays, we should pay those out because we can basically pay those out in a tax-neutral manner, reduces the value of the company. Anything we can do to reduce the value of the company will reduce the value when we leave. Now, let's say we've done all that. We still have a few million dollars or whatever it is that we're going to be on the hook for. So Sure, we can post security, okay? But let's say we just want it, you know, one and done with. If we leave the country, we're going to pay 27% tax. We know that. So why don't we do something before we leave to trigger that 27% tax, but do so in a manner that there won't be any further tax when the money comes out to the now non-resident. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is we can do something where we, if the property is mostly retained earnings, meaning it's not based on accrued assets in the company, it's based on sort of Income you've accumulated Active income, over the years. it's actually not just investment. Yeah, exactly. You know, you've you've earned. I'm going to make an example: five million dollars a year over the last five years. Okay, so you got five million bucks, paid your taxes. You have five million dollars in there. Okay, you don't have any assets. You just have the cash. So the company's worth five million dollars. You can do something to basically. We can basically do something called a, a surplus strip. Strip out the money before you leave. It's important that you do this before you leave. If you do it after you leave, then it doesn't achieve its objective. We realize the twenty-seven percent. And we are basically able to create a debt on the company that will enable the company to pay that debt out at $5 million tax-free to the now non-resident, and we're done. So we paid the tax one time. We really generally don't have a problem with paying the tax one time. That's what we have to do. We want to avoid paying it you know, more than once. So that's a way to do it. Another very simple way, if instead of having value of the company comprised of retained earnings, income, let's say I'll just make it easy. There's one asset in there call it a share, cost of a dollar, value of a million. If we leave the country and do nothing, so we paid our 27%, if we then sell, if that corporation sells that asset, we're going to have that taxed again. So what we're going to want to do is kind of the same thing we did in the first iteration, the surplus strip. But instead of doing that, we're going to want to do something to bump up the cost base of that 
Bell Canada share inside the company. We will, I'm not getting into the details, but we will basically through the capital dividend account, refundable tax account, we'll be able to pay 27% tax, bring the cost inside the company of that Bell Canada share from a dollar to a million. And when the company then sells that Bell Canada share, well, there's no tax because we've on that value because we've bumped it up and we can pay it out tax-free to the now non-resident. So those are the two main ways to do it. Another way that Jason and I are dealing with, which is a little more maybe on the aggressive side, right? Depending on your share structure. I'm just going to name one real life example. It's not the one Jason and I did, but you also have to look at the country, okay, that you're moving to or to where you might have shareholders already. So for example, I had a company, this guy had retained earnings of, let's say a million dollars. He was a former doctor, you know, but all his kids moved to, I believe it was Israel. They moved to Israel. And Israel has a, and some other countries have this too, but Israel has a rule if you move there. I believe it's 10 years you get a tax holiday on foreign investment income, investment income from the United States, Canada, all this stuff. So this guy had one of his shareholders owned a class of shares that were dividend paying shares. We could get it. We could pay this guy a dividend. So I looked at the company. I said, you know, a million dollars here. Okay. Whatever the number is. Your son, where does he live? He said, oh, Israel. He's been there nine years. He's got one more year left of this tax holiday. So what did we do? Corporate law permitted it. You have to look at the corporate law in Canada to make sure you can do this. But we paid this guy a dividend of nearly the whole million dollars this Israeli uh, uh, resident, we have 15% withholding tax, okay, because it's 25 reduced by the treaty. And the guy paid 0% tax in Israel. In Israel. So what did we do? We got away with 15% basically departure tax, which is a good result. Jason and I are doing- Fantastic result, quite honestly. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it kind of came to me at the last minute. I was sort of looking and said, oh, where's this guy live? Jason and I are doing a similar thing where we are trying to reduce the value of the company in a pretty tax-free-ish manner by paying a dividend. So you have to look at the whole picture. And I'll add to that, with the looking at the whole picture too, especially when you may have family in different countries. So one of the things about the implications yeah. of what we're working on is one child is involved in the business, another one is not. Equalization is a definitive concern. And equalization, given the fact that there's assets in multiple countries, and one of those countries has forced airship rules, has thrown quite a curveball into this. Now that said, it's completely doable, but it's one of these things where I'll go back to your point about you have to contemplate the laws of the country in which you're going to, not just the cross-border treaty, but how they tax things. And I'll go back to the one wild card on this one, is how estates work in those countries. And for those who are unaware, there are many countries that have forced airship rules that say, guess what? The default is you're giving X percent, you're giving this to your wife, this to your kids, or whatever it is. And that's them's the breaks. Like that's what you're gonna do. Right. It's not like, you know, there's lots of countries where wills are not necessary, quite honestly. Yeah, good point. Like I I didn't know that about Portugal when we did this, uh, we started this project together. You know, he said, Well, you know, yeah, you can do that, but we gotta think about the Portuguese aspects. And I was like, Okay, yeah, you know, that's true. I, something I know nothing about, but but uh, yeah, absolutely right. I know I think France and a lot of those other countries like that under the civil law have, yeah. have stuff like that that uh does have to be taken yeah. 100%. Yeah, Napoleonic Code is big on that. Also, Napoleonic Japan. Code, right. uh, Japan is also big on that. There's almost, my understanding is less than 10% of people even get a will done in, in Japan because essentially the forced airship rules are so strong over there. I mean, that's something I was told years ago, and I think I looked it up at the time. I seem to be right. So overall, I mean, this is kind of a, <laughs> a bit of a dive and a rundown. But at the end of the day, I think the key takeaways are if you leave this country, there may or may not be tax implications. But if you have substantial wealth, the probability of that happening increases pretty substantially. And you can get, as you said, in that case with the, with, when you use these example of the private company shares, like potential triple taxation, the capital gain on the exit, the withholding tax on money coming out, which may or may not be in line with whatever 
cross-border trading we're doing. And then, of course, the eventual sale within the corporation. So anyone who dies with private company shares already has a possibility of double taxation. We cover that quite heavily in the uh, post-mortem planning episode. But you throw in expatriation, and now you have a triple taxation situation. So as always, get the right help is what I'm saying. So we've, we've covered all that. I want to talk about one last thing. It's people coming back to Canada after expatriating. What does that look like? So that is a whole other regime, but it can be boiled down to kind of like this. If you are coming back to Canada, okay, you can basically, depending on the facts, make it a cashless endeavor. So if you leave Canada, we know you have a departure tax. So let's just use a very simple example. You leave Canada and you, um, I don't want to use rental property for now, but you have a, a private company shares, okay, that are not derived from real estate, Canadian real estate, just private company shares. So you leave. Now, if you kind of have an idea that you're going for four or five years, but you're going to be back, what you can do is, well, you don't want to pay tax in money because you know you're coming back. So Canada has this regime that when you're coming back to Canada, you can sort of unwind or defer the departure tax you would have otherwise been required to pay when you left. Let me give you an example. Leave Canada. You have a million dollar accrued gain in private company shares. You know you're coming back in four years. You pledge your house as security. CRA takes it, no problem. So you leave, okay, you're in the United States, da, da, da. Then you decide to come back. Now, assuming the value of those shares has not declined, you can actually, let's say now it's gone up to $10 million. When you left, it was worth one. Coming back, those shares are worth 10. Now, when you come back to Canada, the normal rule is when you take up residency in Canada, you actually get an increase in cost base of the property you're bringing in to the fair market value at the time you're bringing it in. So if we were to move back to Canada, I would now get a bump up in my private company shares from, call it a million, $10 million. So my cost for Canadian tax purposes going forward is actually $10 million. Logic is you were outside Canada when that gain accrued, Canada shouldn't get to tax it, okay? But when you left Canada, you owed the government a million dollars right? There was a million dollar gain. So you owed them 27% of that. There was a million dollars. So what you can do is now that you've come back to Canada, the government of Canada will say, okay, well, now you're back here. All right. We're going to let you basically, instead of having a cost base of $10 million that you would normally have, we're going to let you have a cost base of $9 million on that property. What that reduction of a million is, this is an election you could choose, is to say that million dollar gain that I incurred when I left, I'm going to basically pay tax on it later in the form of a reduced cost base of the property I'm bringing into Canada. Okay. So you have two choices when you come back, you pay the tax on the million dollars, million dollar gain that you incurred when you left Canada, or you say, I would normally have a $10 million cost base in the property I'm bringing in. Let's call it 9 million. So that's a great way to basically leave Canada, post your security, get the security back. And then you kick that million dollar departure tax down the road to when you eventually actually do sell for money those private company shares. So that's one big advantage. Now, if the shares were taxable Canadian property when you left, meaning they were, let's say you had a real estate property, in a Canadian real estate property in a corporation when you left Canada, okay? So you can post those shares of security. When you come back, if those shares are still taxable Canadian property, meaning comprised of more than 50% real estate, you can actually completely unwind your departure tax. So I'm not hmm. talking about just taking that million dollar gain and reducing the cost base of the property brought in and in effect paying that $1 million gain later. You can actually unwind it like it never happened. You can get your security back, 
and completely unwind it. There's reasons for that. I'm not going to get into the, the logic for that rule. Well, I mean, but, let's let's talk about that. Let's imagine. Okay, the logic. The reason. logic I mean, like that, that could be a number of things. What if I have to go move to another country to take care of an ailing parent for a couple of years, right? Well, like, no, the logic. Sorry, what I mean is the logic of if it's taxable Canadian property versus mm-hmm. not taxable Canadian property. Why in the latter with taxable Canadian property you can completely unwind your departure game, like it's it's like it didn't happen. Versus if it was just say private company shares. When he left private company shares, when he came back, you can take that million dollar departure gain. You will have to pay it, but only when you eventually sell the property that you sort of um, yeah. brought back into Canada. The difference there is that taxable Canadian property, it's taxable whether you are a non-resident of Canada or not. So if you come back to Canada, they basically say, okay, we're going to let you completely unwind this because when you leave Canada, any gains on that property, right, or loss would have been subject to tax in Canada. So if you come back to Canada, we're going to basically, it's like the departure tax never happened because Canada would have always got tax on that. But if it's- I mean, what they're basically saying is that we're just going to ignore this period, but the tax is then basically going to still apply for when you do eventually sell. Yeah. Contrasted with, contrasted with, if it was just normal private company shares, well, you left Canada, Canada gets no further increase or decrease on that property while you're a non-resident. So Canada says, hey, that million you left with, we're getting it. Might not be now. We'll let you choose for us to get it later, but we're getting it. Now, if you leave, here's another thing we should probably just cover. If you leave and the property is a million dollars and while you're in the US, plummets to zero, what happens then? So, Well, that's an interesting point. So, yeah. <laughs> so now you, co- <laughs> you, come, so, you come back, go on. No, so, so now it's worth zero. You've posted security. Now, in all reality, if the property went to zero, as long as your security is, is adequately covering it, fine. If, you're, if your security no longer is is covering it, they're just going to call the security. But let's say you have adequate security so that you leave with a million dollar gain, you post security, and it goes down to zero, a buck. You come back to Canada. If the property is not taxable Canadian property, meaning it wasn't derived from real estate, so just shares of your private company, doesn't matter, you're out of luck. You're going to pay that, that million dollars. You can't post emigration losses, you're out of luck for. Canada says, hey, no, when you left, you owed me a million dollars. I don't care that the property de- declined in value. Pay up. So that that is a risk that you do take. Now, if it's taxable Canadian property, you can actually basically write get credit for that write down, that loss, that decline in value. And the logic is, taxable Canadian property, as the name might imply, is taxable to non-residents because it's it's taxable to non-residents because it's derived from real property. Canada can basically enforce it. So if you have a increase or decrease while you're abroad, okay. That would be the tax result that Canada would eventually realize. So if you leave Canada, I'm just going to say like you had a rental, let's say you had a Canadian rental property, okay? It's not deemed to be disposed of when you leave Canada. We talked about there's a carve out for Canadian real property, but let's say it's worth a million dollars, okay? If it goes down to a buck and you sell it, that's what Canada gets. That's what Canada gets. So if you have a taxable Canadian property, that's why post-emigration declines in value, Canada gives you a recognition for it. Stuff like Bell Canada shares, private company shares that are not taxable Canadian property, it declines in value while you're overseas, tough luck. You're stuck with that. So a lot of words there. I know it's kind of hard to convey it, but be careful when posting security because um, depending on the property, you might just be on the hook for it either way. Lovely. So let's go over the quick calls notes on this to make sure we got this covered. Yeah. So you leave, if you're, the less you have, the less likely there's going to be an implication. But if you specifically have 
taxable investments. And even if you don't have taxable investments, you need to plan your exits. So things like if you're moving to the States, bumping up your basis for your RSPs and liquidating your, your, your TFSAs. Also, I would also say that our ESPs can be an issue depending on what country you're going to as well. Our DSPs, oh boy, talk about a new thing that no one's ever touched. So these all have implications need to be explored, especially depending on what country you're going into. But when you start involving small business shares, we have a challenge. Like I said, potential for triple taxation. Then the question becomes, we stated earlier, are your intentions to potentially ever move back to Canada? If that's the case, then there is plenty that can be done around that in particular that can potentially make this, yes, an exercise in, in leaving properly, but then coming back and creating what is essentially a null impact to your situation. But this is, if the one, there's two, two messages with this podcast in general today's episode. One, this is a complex and convoluted space. And it never ceases to amaze me how many people think that borders just don't somehow apply to random stuff. Like it's just, I got into a uh, situation the other day with a new client who basically um, moved to Canada years ago and just never never filed the Canadian tax authorities and all kinds of other stuff. And it's just like, well, why would that matter? It's just like, because it does, it's called law. And people get these ideas in their heads as to what, what people, when people care and when people don't, but governments have their own ideas. And the second piece is get help. Like this is, Anyone who thinks they could go through what Justin just went through or what we've talked about on most of these podcasts, you're deluding yourself. The reality is, is that there's a reason why trained professionals, especially experts in narrow fields, get paid what they do. It's because this is complex stuff and you're going to do this properly. And if you don't do it properly, you know, the most common, I'm sure you've heard this before, uh, you know, none of my buddies who moved overseas did any of this. It's like, that's fine. That's called an audit risk because they catch you. And then they go back and they automatically start, they just start assessing you and telling you what it is you owe them. And then you got to go fight them. So good luck to you on that one is what I always tell people with that. So yeah, any last you know, thoughts? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I know. My last thoughts would be, we're not going to talk about it now, but there are you know other additional avenues you can use to reduce your tax. If your shares qualify for the lifetime capital gains exemption, when you leave, there's about 900,000 that's tax-free. You can get that you know when you leave on departure. Also have to make sure that when you leave Canada, if you paid a deemed tax of a million dollars, you want to make sure the country you're going to maybe you know, gives you a cost base to start with of a million dollars, right? So you're not paying that tax twice. Mm-hmm. In the United States, there's something in the treaty, which allows for that at the federal level. The states uh, don't always follow the treaty. California doesn't follow the treaty. New York doesn't follow the treaty. No. So so in a lot of other states, probably about half of them, maybe more. I mean, a whole, a whole list of stuff that don't follow the treaty, right? Because every state's going to secede from the union and they all have their own rules. So I want to touch about that. And then the thing you were talking about, you know, people might say, well, how are they going to get me? How are they going to get me on this departure tax? What are they going to do? Oh boy! So not having seen it myself, but just trying to you know infer, right? And depends on the property. If you have a Canadian building in a corporation, we can all we all know how they can get it. They just go put a padlock yeah. on the door. I mean, it's very easy. It. If it's if it's something in the United States or or that they know about, right? You, depending on what it is, there's agreements between the United States in terms of information sharing could possibly come up that way. If you have a Questrade account in a personal or a corporate bank account. I suppose if they find out that you didn't, you know, cause a deemed disposition when you left Canada, ostensibly, if you would have told Questrade, even if you didn't, if they find out about it, I guess they could go put a lien on that or stop trading, or they could do probably a whole host of things to kind of get their piece of the pie. I guess there could be instances where it might be very difficult for them to get anything. If you held shares in some Greek bank account, and then you leave Canada, unless they have some sharing agreement with Greece, it might be difficult for them to actually enforce that mechanism. but. The moral of the story is the law is the law. You got to pay the tax. And Jason rightly said, it's audit risk. If you don't want to do it, there's a lot of things people will tell me, Justin, I don't want to do it, but then I can't be their advisor, right? I don't want to report this. I'm like, go ahead. 
but I just can't do your tax return. You know, if I yeah. know about it. If it's something- Well, it's we like I tell everybody, you can do whatever the heck you want, but good luck defending it. If it's something that we want to, if we can take a position on it, even if it's a weak position that you want to take, but it's not illegal, sure, let's let's do it if it's viable, okay? Just but don't take the Wesley Snipes position of I shouldn't pay <laughs> taxes. That didn't work out yeah. so well for him. yeah. If it's illegal, obviously we can't do it. And then you're taking your own out of risk. So, so yeah. anyway, thank you very much, Justin. Very much appreciate no it. Where can people find you? Jay Abrams at KBLLP.ca. That's Kangaroo Bob LLP Peter.ca. <laughs> Jay Abrams, KBLLP.ca. Or just Google KBLLP.ca is the website. And, you know, I'm there. A bunch of my partners are on there. We're all there. So hit us up there. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us again for Financial Plan for Canadian Business Owners. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you uh, under, come to understand just how convoluted this section of anything involving cross-border can be. So get the right help. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, or whatever you get your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you. 